nor er det tid for nordisk påtrykk. I'm your host, Eric Stavney, for this Nordic on Tap podcast of life stories, folk tales, and music of the Nordic countries, Iceland, Norway, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Sápmi, and the Faroe Islands, with contributions from folks west of the Atlantic as well. In this podcast, we take a look at Nordic noir, or Nordic crime fiction. Noir, in books or film, is a genre of crime fiction that delves into cases where nothing is as it seems. Finding out the truth behind the crime in this shadowy underworld is usually the quest of some kind of investigative person, a journalist, a police detective, or curious person. Wikipedia says noir is full of cynicism, fatalism, and moral ambiguity. Hmm, perhaps. But certainly psychology is a huge part of it. In the U.S., Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler are famous for creating uh, American noir. Uh, But what about the Nordic countries? Nordic noir, or Scandinavian crime fiction in general, is quite a phenomenon these days. Large sections of bookstores in Scandinavia are dedicated to crime fiction, and reading crime fiction in the springtime, especially around Easter, has become quite the thing. Given many of us around the globe are parked at home observing social distancing this spring, it's a great excuse to crack a book yourself or watch one of the many films and TV series that were spawned from Nordic crime fiction. To learn more about this subject, I called up Dr. Jerry Holt of Purdue University Northwest, who led a group of Norwegian noir fans on a trip to Bergen, Norway last year, and they met a number of authors on their home turf, where many of the novels were set. Holt is a professor of English who first got involved with Norwegian crime novels when he was awarded a Fulbright grant to teach a class in Bergen in 2017-18. He's a crime novelist and playwright himself. When Holt was selected for the Fulbright, the Dean of the College of Humanities, Education, and Social Science at Purdue Northwest said that Holt was the perfect person to teach Nordic noir because he considers the significance of place and time in storytelling. So I began asking Dr. Jerry Holt about his Fulbright grant. In 2016-17, I got a Fulbright award to study and teach at the University of Berger in Norway, and what I had proposed to them was that I do a course about American noir, because Norwegian noir writing, fiction, crime writing, was in enjoying the big boom over there, largely thanks to Joe Nesbo, but to other people as well, other writers. And uh, they liked that real well, and so uh, I did that, and the class turned out to be quite large. It was almost 40 people, mostly Norwegian, 
students, although uh, there were a couple of other nationalities as well. And uh, I gave them a course in law writing and uh, its social implications in the United States and the time and the milieu it came from and what World War II had to do with it and all kinds of stuff like that and even did some uh, noir film with them as well. Well, the course was a great success, and in the process of teaching it, I began to journey forth into the noir community there, thanks to a writer who lives in Bergen named Gunnar Stolason. Gunnar and I met the first week I was there. I had uh, contacted him on Facebook. We bonded immediately. I have a noir novel, and Gunnar had read that, and of course I had read all of his novels. And he became my conduit. Uh, over the next 10 months, I journeyed with him to Oslo, where I met other noir writers, and pretty soon I had an excellent network going. And so when I came back here and went back to work at uh, Purdue Northwest, they asked me to offer a course about Norwegian and noir. <laughs> and that led to wonderful connections via Skype because the very writers I had met there were more than happy to Skype into my class and meet with the American students. And then happiest of uh, moments, I also got a group of Norwegian students I had taught there, thanks to Skype, to meet with my students here and enter into this hands-across-the-water kind of seminar situation, which was just, I've been teaching 55 years, and this was just beyond my wildest dreams. I have never seen students so excited and so engaged. So that's what led to the trip, because people here kept saying, well, when are we going to go there? And uh, in December, the opportunity presented itself, and 10 excellent people went with me to Bergen, where we got uh, up close and personal with uh, four different uh, famous writers. You got walking tours of Bergen from Gunnar and other things like that? Oh, yeah. The, uh, the evening we all arrived and got into our hotel, here was Gunnar and his wonderful wife, uh, Ellen. And within 30 minutes of their arrival, they had the students uh, on the tour out walking through Bergen and uh, actually visiting locales and points that they had read about in Gunnar's novels. I'd assigned two of them uh, to them to be read before they, they went. So that was just our first night. You know, there's a, a famous story about a woman back in the 1940s, a British woman mm -hmm. who came to Los Angeles for her first time and she got in a cab and she was able to tell the Los Angeles cabbie precisely in great, great detail every place she wanted to go. And the cabbie said, but you've never been here before. And she replied, yes, but you see, I have read the novels of Raymond Chandler. And the exact same thing occurred in Bergen for us, thanks to Gunnar, because the city in a noir novel is always a character in and of itself. And there wasn't one of those students who couldn't have comfortably navigated 
Bergen, just thanks to reading uh, the two Tolson novels that I had assigned. I remember the classroom I taught that noir class back at the University of Bergen looked out on a famous Bergen landmark named the St. John Steeple. It's a church steeple. And <laughs> and here I am teaching with this steeple right there out the window. And it is also the center point of the opening uh, paragraph of uh, the novel I am teaching. So... <laughs> Wonderful things happened like that all the time. Fantastic. I got to go to Oslo last October and November, and I missed my chance to go see where Harry Hola hung out. Yeah, Schroeder's Bar. You were talking about what defined American noir, or at least what time period and what was going on, and that would be one of my questions maybe for a, for a general reader. How would you define noir? What, what defines that genre? Okay, that's getting uh, pretty easy to answer these days because the scholarship is, has gotten so strong. Uh, we all know that uh, America claims the detective story because, in a very real sense, Edgar Allan Poe can be said to have invented it back in the late 1830s. Edgar Allan Poe, right. And that doesn't mean that similar things didn't happen in parallel ways in other countries. It just means that Poe seems to have the strongest claim. But that kind of story, which was then just called a detective story, proved to be extremely malleable as a frame, meaning detective fiction can be used as a kind of lens to discuss virtually anything. Mm -hmm. And of course, by this point, it has. Therefore, as the United States began its decade through decade journey of uh, uh, ups and downs, we saw this form be uh, transmuted remarkably. Paul gave us a detective who was kind of a a god, a superhero who always uh, managed uh, to solve the puzzle. But in World War I years, uh, of course, things happened that no godlike figure was going to be able to solve. 30 million deaths, you know, uh, incredible famine, pestilence, great questions about whether there was pattern or meaning in the world or not. And the detective story adjusted, because from that we got Dashiell Hammett's uh, Continental Op, and then uh, in the 30s, Raymond Chandler's uh, Philip Marlowe, who were not gods. They were normal men with a certain passion for truth or for justice who found that they were never going to defeat the big terrors, the big mysteries, uh, war, uh, coronavirus, you know, whatever. But they were going, if they, they continued their struggles, they were going to be able to mark small victories of maybe saving someone who would not have been saved otherwise. And these stories got uh, are pretty bleak. I mean, there's no bleaker movie than Chinatown. At the same time as kind of Bleak modern nights 
shuffling down what Chandler called the mean streets, down these mean streets someone must go. These uh, detectives proved to be tremendously uh, durable and also versatile because they became not just kind of down-and-out middle-aged men, but also women and African-Americans and uh, Hispanics and Asians and just about every stripe that you could uh, imagine. And so by responding to the times, the so-called noir novel, the novel of darkness and shadows is precisely how that translates. They have been able to carry on a social commentary that has lasted now for nearly 200 years. Do you think that the noir novel still is anchored in uh, metropolitan areas, that you've got to have a city, or whether a city is so integral to the genre that it's got to be there? Like, take, for example, Tony Hillerman novels out, you know, in the Navajo Reservation. That's different. Yes, they certainly can, and they do. Uh, the uh, uh, British examples like the Agatha Christie, Miss Marple books, and so on. Wherever there is a containment of human beings, somebody is doing somebody wrong, and therefore you have a setting, setting for noir. So you said you thought that noir took off in Norway because, largely because of Joe Nesbitt, but you said there were some other influences. Can you speak to that? Joe Nesbitt is the one who has become most well-known to Americans. There are plenty of others who uh, have been extremely influential in Scandinavia for a long time, and they include especially Corinne Fossum, F-O-S-S-U-M, yeah. And, of course, Gunnar, who's been at it since the uh, uh, early 1970s, and a woman named Trudy Tyga, which is spelled T-R-U-D-E-T-E-I-G-E. And she is tremendously popular, but unfortunately has yet to begin to be translated into English. So that's why we don't know her. Yes. But, uh, uh, yeah, the, if you go into a Norwegian bookstore, you have entire bookstore sections now devoted just to, as they call it, K-R-I-M. And I guess you know about uh, Easter in Norway. This is fascinating. Easter, of course, is where people who have them go to their cabins, and it's holiday. They get 10 days. Okay. And they, as a country, and this is, you know, almost, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, it's almost patriotism. As a country, they participate in something called Pasque Cream. Right, Pasque Cream, as I've heard it pronounced. Literally, Easter crime. P-A with a circle over the top, S-K-E-K-R-I-M. Pasque Cream. Which means they go to their cabins, or they go to their houses or wherever, and for 10 days, they read crime fiction. They read noir. No one is quite able to explain where this started and why it's Easter, but believe me, they do it. Some of the posters, mm -hmm. and they put out a lovely poster every year, mm -hmm. and some of them are, look up some of those, they are just perfect illustrations. Can you put your finger on any differences between Norwegian 
noir or crime novels and American ones? This is one of the most interesting things about it. You know, when I was talking about American noir, I pointed out such passages as uh, World War One and World War Two and the Depression and how they had uh, influence on the rise of this kind of writing because the issues being discussed were so topical. It looks like, we can't prove this yet, but it looks like Norwegian Noir actually kicked in about the time of the discovery of oil in the North Sea, about the end of the 60s, 1970, mm -hmm. when it became clear that what had been essentially a rural country was about to become something very different because all of a sudden there was this influx of wealth and money. And all the things that come with this, meaning a move toward the urban, a move toward the city, a growth in organized uh, uh, syndicate crime, all of this that America had already experienced, now it was going to come to Norway. And the idea of reading crime fiction became a kind of rehearsal for the chaos of the future. And so nobody's been able to prove this, but I've got a pretty good idea that uh, all this crime fiction really kicked in with the coming of the oil. Now, I've heard it said that the 2011 mass shooting by Anders Breivik uh, really shook up Norway, and of course the, the world being so horrific. But at that time, Norway was forced to face some evil that perhaps they hadn't seen since the Nazi occupation. Do you think that was a contributing factor to a new awareness of crime? I, I ask this question pointedly of every writer we talk to. If anything, that comes closer to being their 9-11. No one ever expected anything like that. The, the country was caught completely off guard. Uh, the, the whole story just doesn't really fit with Norwegian culture, but yet there it is. And yes, it did serve as a sort of death of innocence. It did cause Norway to realize, yes, it can happen here. And yes, of course, that has acted as a spur to Norwegians putting crime as a larger part of their lives than they probably would have before. But it's so recent that, uh, you know, in order to say something scholarly about it or provable about it, I guess we should say it's going to take more time. Imagine all the things that we experienced at at nine eleven. You know the bad things like fear of strangers and uh, some uh, racial phobia and so forth. And of course the good things like the the coming together in a communal sense, however briefly. You know all those things that meant this was a watershed. That's kind of what happened there with the the kids camp shooting. What what yeah. would you say you're you're most interested in showing people by having them meet the authors themselves? What makes that an interesting proposition? Yeah, that is actually a better question to ask. It is an unusual experience, particularly for a young person, a college age 
uh, student is an experience they haven't had before, in fact, to read somebody and then suddenly you're in the room either in person or by Skype talking to this person. There's a very curious magic about it, particularly when the authors are so forthcoming and so student-friendly as the people who have spoken to my classes in this pursuit. It turns a key where all of a sudden you're connected, humanly connected, in a way that is beyond the printed page. And I've never seen a class not absolutely be enthralled by this experience. On the one hand, you're gonna have somebody like Gunnar who will actually go ahead and, and talk with these students and then let them uh, friend him on Facebook. So they become, you know, actually a part of his continuing life experience. That's one part of it. But the other part of it is the words on the page themselves. You know, somebody wrote these. And uh, now, uh, all of a sudden, it's just the veil, the curtain has been drawn back. You are looking at, you are talking directly to these words that have already touched you in some way or another. And it's just, I can't say enough good things about it. It's just magical. I mean, my questions would be, you know, what, what drove you to write this? Did you have some similar life experiences that you put into it? You know, how did your own geographical experience where you lived, did you, you know, weave that in because they were important to you? I mean, that's the kind of things I'd love to ask an author. Exactly right, and that's what they ask him. Sometimes, actually, some of the most interesting things come about because of plot points in particular novels that lead back to the very things we were just talking about. Were you referencing this actual news event uh, in this passage? Who is this character really? You know, things like that. Those are, you, you can't buy it, man. Those are just moments when they absolutely connect. I can remember the class asking the very reclusive Corinne Fossum about a, a device in one of her novels in which we could not be quite sure whether a woman who was in prison was actually getting letters from her son or just making them up. And, uh, and everything turns on this point in the, in the book. And uh, ultimately, Fossum just told the class there were no letters. And the way she said it <laughs> was just absolutely like a boom had been lowered in the middle of the room. And, and the sense of uh, uh, intimacy that came with that revelation. Then I can't, I couldn't manufacture these experiences. You have to, you know, I, I can set the scene and I can teach the, the material. But finally, to put these very erstwhile students, I can't say enough about the quality of students, these very erstwhile students and these kinds of writers in a, in a room together, amazing things are going to happen. And the writers come away very, they always tell us they come away very uh, enriched from it because uh, they couldn't quite believe, you know, that there was going to be this level of serious study applied to uh, genre writing. 
And once they see that happening, they're, you know, they're totally with you. So that scene you were just describing with Karin and, and saying there there were no letters is is the the amazement is that she has she has created something that seems so tangible and real and had to have come from some life experience and let you and yet you find out that she's fabricated them or authored them. I mean, is that part of what was amazing in that moment? Oh yes, yes, all all of that and more. I remember a lovely Skype that the uh, Norwegian students got to do with the American writer from Chicago, Sarah Paresky, mm-hmm. who writes a long-running series called The Iron Shosky. She's a, a tough-talking uh, Chicago private eye. And she had written a novel that I chose for them to read in which part of the plot turned around a campus in the 1950s, an American campus, that would not allow Jewish professors to take up regular housing. If you get this, you know, in the 1950s, you can believe that. Well, we had already, of course, I do biographical and and historical context, as you can tell. We had already studied Perevsky, and we knew Duncan well that that was her own family because her father was a college professor at the University of Kansas at the end of World War II, and they could not get any place to live because they were Jewish. I mean, the students knew this already when they took up the book and to see the way she was transmuting these materials and working with what was her own life story, but somehow or another objectifying it to the point that she could actually, in her writing, she had applied a filter that allowed her to deal with these tragic circumstances. It was just, you can do this with a book? Well, Wow. You can see. <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. Yeah, that is it's interesting. You think, well, no, you got to write nonfiction if you want people to appreciate something that actually happened. But you know what I'm hearing you say is, is fiction very definitely can guide and change attitudes. It's maybe even more amazing craft than telling the truth. You mentioned, uh, for example, uh, Chinatown a while ago. uh Of course we know that Chinatown is based on the real scandal in which Los Angeles was basically held hostage in regard to water because of some scheming by some uh, executives to uh, essentially extort the city. We know this all happened. It happened in the in the uh, 1920s and in the movies in the 30s, but okay, fine. But we also know that that film being released in 1973 has that historic basis, but it is also even set in the 1930s is happening at the time of Watergate and the time that we are getting incredible revelations about the Nixon White House and the awful things that that Nixon and his, his flunkies did. Thus, when it came, comes to the moment when the evil Noah Cross, John Houston, says to the Nicholson character, what you don't understand, Mr. Gitz, is that at the right time, a human being 
is capable of anything. Well, if you lived through Watergate and the end of the Vietnam War, as I did, those words were the daily revelations that we were living. So, man, I will never believe that a detective story cannot be a punch right in the nose because when it connects like that one does, that's exactly what's happening. Past, present, and even future are coming together in ways that are absolutely startling. I could go on on length with you. You're you're, you're fun to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I love what I do, and uh, I'm a writer myself, so I, I really care about this stuff. And it's a little more acute to me right now because this is my uh, last term. I'm retiring, and here I've essentially been kicked out of the face-to-face classroom, as we all have been. So some bittersweet stuff is happening to me, and I just hope that there's going to be some continuity here, that we're going to understand how important these works, how important a uh, Sarah Paresky or a, a Chandler or a Ross McDonald and all the people who uh, sweat blood into this stuff can't just, you know, forget about them. And so that's why you're, what you write and what you carry forth will be very important. Thank you so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you very much. So where did this phenomenon of Poskekrim come from? In Norway, one story says that Poskekrim came about through the ads for a book called Bergen's Toge, Plindretti Nat, the Bergen train was robbed last night, on Palm Sunday, that's when these ads were placed, in 1923. The book, this book about the train, was written by Jonathan Yerv, which is actually a pseudonym uh, of an author team, Nordahl Grieg and Nils Lee, finished in 1923. And this perked up my own ears as I belonged to the Nordahl Grieg Sons of Norway Lodge in San Jose, California. And I never really appreciated who Nordahl Grieg was, besides perhaps being distantly related to the composer Edvard Grieg. It's interesting that many of us learn about the culture, language, geography, and the soul of place we've never been to through fiction, and it it changes us. And that's why I enjoy reading fiction, because there you can get into the mind of uh, people uh, and the psychology of why they're doing things, unlike in nonfiction, which reports the, the dry facts. You can read a number of articles, including one by Dr. Jerry Holtz and our local university expert, that is in Seattle, Andy Nestingen, uh, in the April 3rd edition, 2020, of the Norwegian American News. Um, That's at NorwegianAmerican.com. And they've also recommended a list of crime fiction authors, books, films, and TV shows for you to watch. Crime fiction is, of course, not only big in Norway, but also in many of the Scandinavian countries. That's why I'm calling this podcast Nordic Noir. There's Stieg Larsson of Sweden, Ursa Sigurdardottir of Iceland, uh, Antti Tuomainen of Finland, and many others. I've posted some of these authors and titles on our Nordic on Tap Facebook website, so check that out. 
A fan of Nordic on Tap dropped me an email the other day to say that he and some other musicians were going to play Scandinavian music from his driveway as an offering to the neighborhood. This isn't as strange as it sounds, uh, although some have said that Norwegian accordion music is a form of assault and ought to be banned. Well, that's going to get me in trouble. But I do play the accordion, so fair's fair. No, truly, all joking aside, perhaps you two have been reading the news about public performances in other parts of the world where people are quarantined and they can't otherwise get out to the local music hall or venue. Italians are singing from their balconies. Sing-alongs are not uncommon between tenants of apartments around Europe. And so I'd like to play for you this charming example of public performance with a piece called Stuntarvalsen. There's a button accordion and two fiddles on this. Imagine hearing this through your window on a day stuck at home. It sure brightened my day. That's our Nordic Noir podcast. May you find enjoyment in a book, a TV or film, or other show yourself. Uh, don't forget to check out our Facebook website, on Nordic on Tap, to see a list of Scandinavian authors you might want to check out. Please do write us at nordicontap at gmail.com with suggestions or comments on what you'd like to hear. Our music was composed and performed by the magnificent Daryl Jackson at daryljacksonmusic.com. Thanks for listening. 
Viseas Nestegang. See you next time on Nordic on Tap. Thank you.